This time of year, we start thinking about the first coming of Jesus Christ. And that brings up the issue of the incarnation. What is it and what is it not? This is Evidence and Answers with Christian apologist, scholar, speaker, and author, Pat Zucharin, as we discuss the incarnation. Pat, this is a big theological word. Uh, The word itself isn't found in Scripture, but the doctrine is. Certainly, Kevin, and Christianity is built on the person of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of the nature of Christ is central to Christianity, and it's critical we get this doctrine right for salvation rests upon the proper understanding of the nature of Jesus Christ. And Christmas is a great time to study the doctrine of the incarnation when God became man. Before we start our study on the incarnation, I think, Pat, that we probably ought to look at the doctrine of the Trinity. Give us an understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. And notice that I said the doctrine of the Trinity because understanding the Trinity completely it would be a pretty tall order. However, we can understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. That's key to understanding the doctrine of the incarnation. The doctrine of the Trinity is simply this. There is one God. So as Trinitarians, we are monotheists. There is one God revealed in three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. One God revealed in three distinct persons. Now, uh, there are a lot of deviant teachings regarding the Trinity. For example, the Trinity is not three gods who make up the Godhead. That is tritheism, which is taught in Mormonism. Nor is the Trinity one God who appears in three different forms or puts on three different masks. That's the heresy known as modalism taught by oneness Pentecostals. The Trinity teaches that there is one God revealed in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, is the doctrine of the Trinity taught in the Old Testament or is this a New Testament phenomenon? Great question, Kevin. You know, The doctrine of the Trinity is taught implicitly in the Old Testament and taught explicitly or clearly revealed in the New Testament, but it is implied in the Old Testament. For example, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There's one member of the Trinity there, the Holy Spirit. And if you look in verse 26, there's a plurality of persons there. One God, verse 26 says, Then God said, So one God, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. So there's a plurality of persons there. Then when you go to several passages in the Psalms, such as Psalm chapter 45, verses 6 through 8, The Lord is talking here. He says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and your scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. So God here is talking to the second person of the Trinity. Also, in Psalm 110, we see once again that there are a plurality of persons here. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So there is a plurality of persons here. There is a conversation going on among the persons of the Trinity. In fact, uh, if you look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, it says this, Then I heard a voice 
of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Once again, there's a plurality of persons there. And in Isaiah 48, verse 16, Isaiah 63, 7 through 10, in fact, all three members of the Trinity there are present. And another interesting passage that I just discovered is Proverbs chapter 30. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4, speaking of the Lord, it reads this, Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands? Who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Well, it's obviously talking about God. And it says this of God, What is his name and the name of his son? Tell me if you know. So there's throughout the Old Testament, we see that there is one God, but there is a plurality of persons. So in the Old Testament, the Trinity is taught implicitly in the Old Testament, explicitly with Jesus and the apostles in the Old Testament. Now, I want to recommend that you go to evidenceandanswers.org because we have some very detailed teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity, where we spend a lot of time on the doctrine of the Trinity, doctrine that uh, tends to be in a lot of trouble these days as a lot of people deny it, and it is one of the essentials of the faith. So go to evidenceandanswers.org and get uh, the teaching there. This being the case, Pat, what was the Son of God doing before Bethlehem, before the Incarnation? Great question. You know, I get that question a lot. Before the Incarnation, God the Son was involved in the creation of the universe. John 1 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. So God the Son was involved in the creation of the universe that colossians chapter 1 verse 16 also states for by him all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things were created by him and for him so one of the things god the son was doing before the incarnation he was involved in the creation and the sustaining of the universe also another interesting thing taught in the old testament is that before the incarnation, Jesus Christ appeared as the angel of the Lord. Now, when this being appears with the definite article, the angel of the Lord, we're not just talking any old angel here. There's a very special status the angel of the Lord has. He is called God or Lord several times. He receives worship. And if you look in several passages of the Old Testament is a tremendously powerful, powerful being. In First Chronicles chapter 1, David commits the sin of numbering his men, and that leads to his pride. And the angel of the Lord, you know, judges and kills thousands of his men. And when David finally finds him at the wine press, David builds an altar there and worships the angel of the Lord. Exodus chapter 3. Uh, Moses meets God at the burning bush and talks about the angel of the Lord was there at the burning bush. So the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ? Yes, indeed he is. Uh, Judges chapter 6, the one who speaks to Gideon is the angel of the Lord. And when Gideon builds an altar for worship and burns his sacrifice on that altar, you know, the angel disappears in the flame. And Gideon is frightened because he's seen the face of God. Also, Judges 13, Manoah and his wife, same thing happens. And 
They're fearful of their lives because they have seen the Lord. So he is a being of tremendous power. He is mentioned throughout the Old Testament. And in fact, in 2 Kings chapter 19, when Hezekiah is praying for deliverance from the Assyrian army, it says that night in chapter 19 of 2 Kings in verse 35, that the angel of the Lord goes out and kills 185,000 fighting men of Sennacherib. And so the angel of the Lord has very special status. That most likely is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He's not just an ordinary angel. And we know that he is not God the Father. He is the uh, another member of the triune Godhead. Zechariah 1.12 The angel of the Lord is a separate person from the Father because in that particular passage, chapter 1 verse 12, they are talking to one another. So once again, there's a plurality of persons here. And we know that after the incarnation, the angel of the Lord doesn't appear again. And so you put all that together, and the evidence points very strongly that the angel of the Lord is indeed the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Well, explain to us then, Pat, what happened at the incarnation. Well, at the incarnation, something very special took place. God lay aside, God the Son lay aside his power and glory and took on human limitations and frailty. So at the incarnation, we have Jesus Christ, who was 100% God and 100% man. That's what happened at the incarnation. God became flesh. In Jesus, we had a dual nature there, 100% man, 100% God. Augustine said it's not the subtraction of deity, but the addition of humanity. Uh, Several deviant or false teachings developed uh, regarding the nature of Christ. What What are some of these that we need to watch out for? Right, and some of them are still perpetuated still uh, to this day. Uh, The Docetists appeared in the first century, and they denied Christ's human nature. They said at the Incarnation, he was fully divine, but he was not human. He only appeared as a human being. In the second century, we have a heretical movement begun by the Ebionites. They believed that Christ was 100% man, but they denied that he was divine. Then we have the Arian heresy that popped up in about the 4th century AD. And they are today, this particular heresy is perpetuated by the Jehovah Witnesses. And Kevin, you and I did a lot of work uh, on this particular group. And what the Arian heresy taught back then in the 4th century is that Jesus was not eternal, but he was the first of God's creation. Then we have the Eutychian heresy, which appeared in the 5th century AD. And the Eutychian heresy taught that Jesus was not fully human and he was not fully divine, but kind of a mixture of both. So there are some deviant teachings that appeared amongst the early church. But the biblical teaching of what happened at the Incarnation is that Jesus Christ remained 100% God and he was 100% human. So when you look at the Incarnation, Luke chapter 2 the mighty creator and judge of mankind became a tiny child. And as a child, he was dependent on Joseph and Mary for food and for protection. So if you ponder this thought, it's amazing to think that the God who created the universe left the splendor of heaven to live and suffer as a man. Hmm. You know, you said that uh, Jesus took on human limitations, Pat. 
Christ as man, uh, it says that he, he got tired, he got hungry, he didn't know all things, he was crucified and killed. So did Christ cease to be God at the Incarnation? Well, that's a great question. And Philippians chapter 2, Paul articulates the Incarnation or the doctrine we call the kenosis. And Philippians chapter 2 states this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what happened at the incarnation? Did Christ cease to be God? No. Jesus was always God, even during his incarnation. And we can see evidence of his divine attributes in the Gospels. Jesus demonstrated his omniscience and power over creation throughout his ministry. For example, in John chapter 4, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman, he knew all about her past, so he demonstrated some of his omniscience there. She was so surprised, you know, she ran to the people in her town and said, come and see the man who told me all the things that I have done. So there are times Christ demonstrated his divine attributes. But at the incarnation, Jesus did not cease to be God, but he freely restricted the use of his divine attributes and power to freely limit himself in human limitations and frailty. And so he did not cease to be God. He just restricted the use of his divine attributes and power. He limited his rights and abilities to deity. Right. Philippians 2, so that he could take the form of a servant. Right. You know, it's like a TV show the other day um, doing a documentary on Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players of our time. And I think it was an eight-year-old child playing basketball with Michael Jordan. And, you know, Michael Jordan could easily have whooped the kid and never let let that kid shoot one shot, you know. But as they were playing basketball, you know, this kid was actually beating Michael Jordan. You know, why? Well, Michael Jordan was freely restricting, you know, the use of his abilities so that this kid could enjoy interacting with him. He condescended. And, you know, we that's a negative term today. You say, boy, you're very condescending. But it, he condescended to our level. And that's what uh, we have in the incarnation. We know in the book of Hebrews, you know, we can't stand before a holy God. He's like a consuming fire. So in order for us to see God and interact with God, God freely limited himself, put aside his glory that would have consumed us, took on the limitations of a human being so that we could interact with him. And that's what we saw in Jesus Christ. You know, Pat, as we study the incarnation, I think we uh, uncover a lot of things that are very unique about it. It seems to be beyond just God indwelling a person. It seems to be God literally taking on flesh and becoming a man and not just indwelling. Mere indwelling just falls short. So something very unique happened here in the incarnation. Well, Pat, this really leads to this question, then why did God have to become man? Well, that's a great question, Kevin. I get asked that question often. Why did God have to go through this whole process? Well, there's several reasons, Kevin, why the incarnation needed to take place, why God needed to become man. First, he needed to provide a perfect sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10, if you read that passage, verses 1 through 10, 
Sin requires the death of a living sacrifice for a payment. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The just penalty for sin is death. However, the eternal God does not die. The sacrifice had to be made of a perfect man, but no man is perfect. Only God is perfect. So you could have a perfect sacrifice in the God-man. Verses 11 through 13 of Hebrews says that only a perfect sacrifice could fulfill the requirement once and for all. Second, the most effective way to communicate and provide an example for us was through the Incarnation. You know, John 1.18 states that we could never comprehend God in His full glory if He appeared as He truly is. But in the Incarnation, God reveals Himself to us, the essence of God's nature, in a way that we could comprehend and understand it. You know, I remember the story that I heard that there was a man and a flock of birds had entered into his barn and they were somehow trapped in his barn and they couldn't get out. Well, he tried several ways to try and get these birds out and he couldn't. And no matter what he tried, he was trying to move them towards uh, the barn door and usher them out. But no matter what he tried, they were afraid of him and they kept going further, further into the barn. Finally, he just sat down and wondered, man, what would be the best way that I could lead these birds out, you know, and he was just thinking about it and thinking about it. And then he said, you know, the best way is if I became a bird and I could communicate with them and somehow lead them out of this barn. And then it dawned on him that that's what happened at the incarnation. The infinite God limited himself in the form of a man, in a form that we could comprehend and understand and have a relationship with him and interact with him. And that's what we have in the Incarnation here. Third, uh, the Incarnation uh, needed to happen so that Christ could become a sympathetic high priest. You know, Hebrews chapter 4 says that Christ is our high priest and he's one who can sympathize with us because he's been tempted as we have been tempted. So the one who stands before God on our behalf understands intimately our struggles and it was necessary for God to become a man and to be tested as we are so that he could be our sympathetic high priest. He has endured every struggle that we are likely to undergo. Therefore, the passage states that we can come to him with full confidence. And so many of us who come from non-Christian backgrounds, I remember before I accepted Christ, I view God as a very distant, unemotional, very critical kind of God. However, in Christ, we saw a man who endured the same struggles we did, and he can sympathize with us as our high priest. You know, we see in the Gospels how Christ wept over people, loved ones who passed away or over a nation that rejected him. And therefore, he can understand, he can sympathize with us in our times of need, and it helps us to draw close to him. And another reason the incarnation needed to happen is that uh, Christ needed to destroy the works of Satan. You know, 1 John 5.19 says that the world is under the temporary rule of the evil one. And that Christ came to recapture enemy territory. You know, I'm looking at the footage of our capture of Saddam Hussein there in Iraq. And in order to capture and actually defeat Saddam, we needed to go to Iraq, defeat his armies and capture him on his turf. That's why we needed to invade Iraq. Uh, we couldn't win it just firing missiles from a distance. 
and for Christ to conquer and reclaim lost territory to the enemy. He came here upon this earth under the temporary rule of Satan to recapture lost territory and destroy the works of the devil. If you're going to beat the champion, you have to get in the ring with him. Exactly. And that's what Christ did upon the cross, defeating the works of the evil one. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 says, Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Pat, as we wrap up here, what you talked about earlier, understanding the incarnation and understanding that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, and that he limited his rights and abilities uh, as deity to take the form of a servant, really answers a lot of the objections and questions that people bring up. Like, if Jesus was God, who was he praying to? Who did he cry out to uh, on the cross? And, and, And how could God die? And how could God cry? And how could God get hungry and thirsty and some and so on? So it, it really answers from the biblical data what the incarnation, what happened there. Well, after the resurrection, Jesus rose again in a material body, in a spiritual body, but uh, nonetheless a material body. Uh, he ate food and, and so forth and uh, now sits at the right hand of the Father. What is his ministry now? Right, Kevin. Well, you mentioned one of them. He's seated at the right hand of God. And this symbolizes one who has completed the task that God gave him. And in ancient times, to be seated at the right hand of the king's throne was a position of honor. In Hebrews 12, John 17, Psalm 110, talks about the Messiah Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. Also in John 16, Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit, taking on human limitations. He could only be at one place at one time. And he says in John 16, it's necessary that I go away so that the counselor or the comforter will come. The Holy Spirit, he will teach you all things and he'll be with you at all times. So the Holy Spirit could be omnipresent, indwelling all the believers and have that kind of ministry. So he's the sender of the Holy Spirit. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 talks about him being the head of the church. Christ is the one who founded the church. The church is built upon him, and he is now the head of the church. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about Christ being our great high priest. And also in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, it says, There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So he is the intercessor between God and man. He and the Holy Spirit are those who intercede on behalf of the saints. And finally, he's the advocate or the one who speaks in our defense before the Father. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. So after Christ ascended, those are the roles of his ministry at this present time. And we await his return when he will sit on David's throne and rule in the millennial kingdom. 
We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. You'll find Pat Zuckerman's interviews with leading scholars and speakers on the most crucial issues facing the church and the world. Go to evidenceandanswers.org and be equipped. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin. God bless and thanks so much for listening. Evidenceandanswers.org. 